0: Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the second of the uh, Robbins Lectures uh, this year. I apologise for my own condition. This is not a disability awareness week stunt. Um, I did uh, did actually have uh, an operation, but it's all fine now. Thank you for asking. Um, <laughs> The, uh, we're delighted. Uh, this is a highlight of our uh, year in economics terms, the uh, Robbins Lectures, and over the last few years we've had a series of real intellectual treats, uh, and I know that this year is no exception uh, at all. Uh, maybe uh, some of you were at the first uh, lecture, so I guess I'll be quite uh, light in terms of my uh, introduction, but we're delighted to have David Leibson from Harvard with us. Um, he uh, did his... Uh, bachelor's at Harvard but was here uh, at the LSE from 88 to 90 uh, doing an MSc in econometrics and mathematical economics uh, which he achieved, it says scrupulously on his CV, with distinction uh, we would expect uh, nothing less from a Robbins lecturer uh, of course uh, uh, he has uh, written is an advisory editor of the Journal of Risk and Uncertainty and has written uh, extensively on risk Issues And uh, this series is on the psychology of savings and investment. And tonight's uh, second of the three lectures is called Investment for Dummies. Uh, I have to say that as far as this evening is concerned, I suspect that there may be more dummies upstairs looking for jobs in the finance fair in investment banks, of which I expect there to be quite few this year, Um And the dummies are on the fifth floor rather than here listening, um, because this is almost certainly a better use of your time. Uh, But uh, David uh, is going to talk about uh, investment uh, decisions, uh, why defaults uh, dominate people's financial choices, rather a relevant topic here, given our travails with Northern Rock. And I don't know if you have time to advise the Chancellor of the Exchequer on the future (laughs) of Northern Rock while you're here, but he is in desperate need uh, of some advice on what to do with that particular problem. Uh, but I'm not going to do what introducers <coughs> sometimes do, which is to read out all the highlights from the lecturer first, which is always a bit of a disappointment, I feel, uh, for the person who follows, but just to welcome David uh, to the school and invite him to do <coughs> volume two of this year's Robin's Lectures. Thank you.
1: I'm going to pick up where we left off last night. Can you hear me? Is the mic okay? Uh, and, uh, but if you weren't here yesterday, that's okay. It will be hopefully pretty self-contained. So yesterday we were talking about intertemporal choice. And by the way, I have a little cold today. So um, if I collapse in the middle, you'll understand why. Yesterday we were talking about intertemporal choice. And <laughs> I warned you. Let's see. And today, we're going to take a lot of the themes that were in place yesterday and translate them into practical considerations in terms of investment behavior. Again, lecture three, tomorrow, we'll begin talking about competitive equilibrium and how all of this plays out when we embed these people into competitive markets. But for now, we're going to primarily focus on the investor, an investor who is imperfectly sophisticated, and ask, how do they make choices? And in so many different ways, how do they deviate from the precepts of the orthodox economic model. So standard classical economic theory tells us that the way you frame a decision shouldn't affect the outcome. As I pick the default, that should not determine what happens in our world, assuming that the cost of getting out of the default is very minimal. And I take it the word default is used in England the same way it has many meanings. So there are many defaults perhaps on the agenda right now in England. Uh, but tonight's default will be simply the um, the setup for the status quo. How are people originally given a situation that they have to, have to deal with? Uh, what is the starting point for their decision making? But as you probably know, in light of now a decade of work, The choice of the default makes an enormous difference. It really makes all the difference. And that's going to be the point of tonight's talk. I'll focus on two particular domains of behavior, savings behavior and asset allocation behavior. But if we had a semester and not a single lecture, we could talk about many, many different areas in which defaults turn out to dominate people's choices. So tonight I'm going to talk first about defaults affecting saving and asset allocation decisions. And then I want to highlight four psychological factors that I think largely or perhaps completely explain why these defaults are so important in driving human behavior. I then want to talk about how an economist, worrying about policy issues, worrying about understanding the world and proposing new policies might model this environment. And finally, I want to kind of flip this the discussion and talk about why alternative interventions that we economists often take for granted as being the most likely candidates for controlling behavior or influencing behavior are in fact quite ineffectual. So I'll emphasize that these alternative angles, financial incentives, education, are remarkably ineffective relative to defaults. So first defaults. I'll talk now about three aspects of behavior that default in essence control. Participation in savings plans, contribution rates in savings plans, and asset allocation in savings plans. I won't have time to talk about other domains of investment behavior that is affected by default, but suffice it to say there are many, many others. So let's begin with automatic enrollment. Everyone know what a 401k is? That's a U.S. savings plan that is increasingly becoming the typical way that American households save for retirement as a top-up to Social Security. So it works this way. You're told, welcome to the company. If you don't do anything, we're going to automatically enroll you in the 401k plan. Traditionally, the automatic contribution rate was 2% of your pay. Uh, Traditionally, the automatic asset allocation was to a money market account. This is obviously a very conservative savings rate and a very conservative asset allocation. We're changing that now in the U.S., but the data I'll show you applies to these experiences a few years ago. You're told, you're automatically in the plan. Call this phone number, it will take you five minutes if you want to opt out of the savings plan. If you do nothing, you're in the plan. Now, this is what we see. This this phenomenon was first studied by Bridget Majorian and Dennis Shea, and I'll show you some data from a joint paper with Bridget and James Choi and Andrew Metrick. This is a company that went through three different regimes. Initially, they had a standard enrollment 401 plan. In other words, you had to call to get into the plan. They then went to an automatic enrollment 401k plan in orange. In other words, you were automatically enrolled and you could opt out of the plan. It turned out so many people enrolled that they got rid of it, and they went back to a standard enrollment plan in blue. So the sequence of events was the green plan, the orange plan, and the blue plan. Let me help you read this figure. The horizontal axis here is employee tenure. So here's an employee or a population of employees at 12 months of tenure. 24, 36, 48 months of tenure. And here are the fraction of employees who are in the plan at those different tenure dates. So as you can see, under standard enrollment, at 12 months of tenure, only about a third of the employees bother to enroll in the savings plan. And that's surprising, because this savings plan has tax deferral benefits and also has a company match. You put money in, the company puts additional money in to match your contribution, up to 6% of pay. Despite that match, only a third of employees enroll. When this company goes to automatic enrollment, simply changing the default, it's a trivial manipulation. Enrollment rates jump from 30% to 80%. Now, this is actually a worst-case scenario. Most companies in the U.S. that have adopted automatic enrollment have gone from participation rates around 40% to participation rates in excess of 90%. This company is a bit lower because it's a firm with less wealthy employees, lower-income employees, with younger employees, and with less educated employees, all of which are risk factors for not saving, or not wanting to save. Okay. Now, so the good news is, by simply changing the default, we can change radically people's behavior. Maybe for the good, hopefully for the good, but we can certainly change their behavior. But what happens is, people's choices glom onto whatever the default contribution rate is and whatever the default asset allocation is. So in this company, again, Orange is the default experiment. 67% of the planned participants end up at the 2% savings rate. They accept automatic enrollment, and they accept the automatic enrollment default of a lousy conservative savings rate. Now, they're generally switching from this higher savings rate of 6%, More employees were out here originally, and that's because that's where the match threshold is. This employer was matching contributions up to 6% of pay. So these employees are adopting the default contribution rate of 2% to some extent at their peril because they're losing these matching contributions. Now, here are three companies. I'm I'm again plotting uh, tenure rates on the horizontal axis and and, um, fractions of employees on the vertical axis. I'm showing you three companies and I'm plotting the fraction of employees at these three companies who accept both the conservative 2% default contribution rate and the conservative money market asset allocation. This is a lousy combination of choices for these employees. A savings rate that's too low and an asset allocation that's too conservative. Nevertheless, at 12 months of tenure, about 70% of employees are still at both of those lousy defaults. Even at four years of tenure, about half the workforce is still stuck at these lousy defaults. So a real burden is upon us. We can control behavior, but we control it so well that whatever we pick as the default will end up being many employees' destiny. Now, here's another example of how powerful defaults are. In Sweden, they have a social security system where you can delegate some of the investment of your assets. When this was first rolled out, about a third of the people in Sweden, the citizens of Sweden, ended up picking the default investment. The Swedes at this point were telling the citizens, it is your duty as a Swedish patriot to make a choice for yourself. Do not pick the default fund. Go with what you think is right. So initially, they had a 30% default allocation. But over time, when that rather silly ad campaign gave way to normal ad campaigns, The fraction of the Swedish population adopting the national default allocation rose to 90%. Now, that's probably good news because the Swedes had a good default fund. But here's some bad news. In the US, employers, as I said, match employee contributions. And those matching contributions are often dumped into employer stock, which means that the employee has both the risk of that company going under And the risk of their investments, of their retirement nest egg, simultaneously going under. They lose their job and they lose their retirement savings. So what I'm going to show you now is how critical the default is in this employer match context. I'm going to show you a company that went through two different regimes. I'll always be comparing within the same company. First, the company had a default regime where they took these matching dollars and dumped them into employer stock and told the employees... If you wanna move out of the employer stock, that's fine. It's your right to do so. But the initial investment is to employer stock. You can make a change. They then went through another regime where they told their employees, it is your obligation to choose for yourself. There is no default. We have no fallback position. You must decide. Richard, it is your obligation to make a decision. What fund do you want us to put the matching money into? Now again, economic theory says these are identical systems. It doesn't matter where the default is. People should choose what is best for them. What do we actually see? Well, when the the default for the matching contribution was employer stock, employees ended up with 95% of their matching contributions going to employer stock and 23% of their own contributions going to employer stock. So their net contribution, their net asset allocation to employer stock was 56% of their retirement nest egg. When this company abandoned the default and compelled Richard to choose for himself, now employees only allocated 27%, still too much in my opinion, but 27% to employer stock and 20% of their own money so that the net contribution to employer stock was 23%. Bottom line, the default makes all the difference. Now there are four reasons that I believe play a critical role in driving this sensitivity, in driving this highly influential default outcome. Financial illiteracy, endorsement effects, complexity effects, and present bias. Present bias will be reminiscent from yesterday, and that'll actually be a key mechanism, because it will interact with the other three. In survey after survey of American investors, these are actually investors, not just the general populace, Americans show remarkably little knowledge about financial services and financial instruments. Now, whether you believe surveys or not, this is the kind of result you get. For example, respondents on average believe that employer stock is less risky than a diversified mutual fund. Holding one stock is less risky than holding 500 stocks. Nonsense, I think, and yet the majority of Americans believe this. Americans believe that, 40% of them believe that a money market fund contains stocks, when in fact it only contains short-term securities, uh, um, uh, fixed income securities. 38% of respondents report that they have little or no financial knowledge, and so on and so on and so on. Now, these kinds of surveys can be somewhat misleading. Most economists would say, what incentive do these people have to actually take these surveys seriously and give us real answers? Perhaps... The answers are nonsense because the incentives are non-existent. They just answer the questions and get out of the room as quickly as possible because we economists or we survey researchers don't incent them to actually take these seriously. So here's another example of an incented exercise that my collaborators and I did. And this is going to cut a little close to home because it's about students um, at a competitor institution at uh, Wharton and Harvard. Uh, Now, Wharton, I think, is probably the most relevant because it's about the people on the fifth floor tonight uh, who are all there for, I think, an investment banking fair. We asked our subjects, Wharton and Harvard students, to allocate $10,000 across four index funds. And we chose these four index funds ahead of time. I'll show you the four in a second. We told the subjects we would randomly choose two of them and actually give them their $10,000 investment. And if it went up, They would keep all of the plus side. And if it went down, we would swallow all the losses. So we told them two would be selected to receive this special um, opportunity. To eliminate variation in pre fee returns, we chose four index funds. We wanted them to be choosing in a commodity context, a commodity investment vehicle and we unbundled services from returns, we paid out to the subjects. They did not have a a relationship with these firms. They actually were paid out by us, the experimenters. So here are the four funds, Allegiant, Mason Street, Morgan Stanley, and UBS. Uh, I'm sorry to say that these funds happen to have very high fees. We did that intentionally because we wanted to study funds where the fees made a big difference. Would our subjects be sensitive to these fees? Now on a $10,000 investment, the fees for these funds ranged from a low of three percentage points at Allegiant, that would be 300 bucks on 10000 to a high of nearly six percentage points at Morgan Stanley because Morgan Stanley has a very big load in its index fund. We told our subject, you're going to hold the portfolio for one year. It's as if you made the investment and then took the money back out. So they understood, or they should have understood, fees matter. So what are we actually what do we actually do with our subjects? We put them through three conditions. In all three conditions, our subjects are going to see the prospectuses from all four funds. So in every condition, our subjects get full information. They're gonna see the entire prospectus from all four of these funds and the prospectuses contain the information, return information, you name it, it's all there. In a second condition, We're going to take our subjects and lead them by the nose and beat them over the head and tell them, you know, fees really matter. In case you haven't noticed this, fees make a big difference. And we're going to show them on a one-page sheet the fees from these four funds. Now, that information is redundant. It was already in the prospectuses. All we're doing now is making that information more salient. And in the third condition that I won't tell you about today for lack of time, we gave them another sheet that told them about returns. Again, redundant information. It's already in the prospectus. But we wanted to see what would happen if we kind of marketed historical returns to them. So let's look at the control condition. So here are Wharton MBAs, the best finance department in the world, other than than those students graduating from LSE, of course. And here are Harvard College students. On average, they chose funds that led to fee payments of $421 for the MBAs and $431 for the Harvard College students. Now, if they had done the fee minimizing thing and chosen the least expensive index fund in this experiment, which is the rational thing to do, they would have allocated all their money to that fund and would have paid the minimal fee of $309. If they had chosen the worst possible fund in this menu, they would have paid the maximum possible fee of $600. Now, if they had thrown darts, this is what they would have paid in fees. So you can see that even Wharton MBA students aren't doing much better than dart throwers in this exercise. Another measure of success is to ask, what fraction of our subjects got this experiment exactly right? Nailed it. A plus. Put all of their money in the low-cost fund. The answer? Only 6% of the Wharton MBAs put all of their money in the low-cost index fund. And 0% of my students put all of their money in the low-cost index fund. Now, that's the prospectus-only condition. And you might reason, well, maybe a prospectus is a very hard thing to read. It's a long document. These people, only two of them were going to be actually given the $10,000. Maybe no one actually paid attention to the prospectus. So here's condition, and I should emphasize, the MBAs told us that fees were the most important thing in their decision. Though, of course, it didn't really show up in their behavior. At least the college students were consistently irrational. So now we go on to the second condition, the fee transparency condition. We're going to give you that one-page sheet and ask you to make the decision about the allocation. Of course, you also see the four prospectuses. What happened? Well, the MBAs took the message. They, When we waved the sheet in front of them, put more of their money in the low-cost funds and their fees fell, but not all the way down to where they should be. The Harvard College students were robustly uh, insistent upon their choices. Again, random dart throwing is this line here. What about the fraction who got this exactly right with our little hint? Well, now we've moved up to 19% of the Wharton MBA students nailing it, meaning putting all their money in the low-cost fund. And now we've gotten 10% of the Harvard College students to nail it and put all of their money in the low-cost fund. Now, you might reason... Well, we did, we were kind of surprised. We thought when we led them by the nose, when we showed them these fee summary sheets, when we basically told them, fees are critical, here they are, they're easy to compare, hint, take advantage of low cost funds. They still got it wrong. You might reason, well, maybe it was about incentives. Maybe the fact that we only drew two out of 200 subjects and gave those two subjects the $10,000 prize or in essence the $10,000 investment opportunity, that that's why our subjects did so abysmally. So in response to concerns like that, we did a new study. We recruited 400 additional subjects, and this time they're Harvard staff members. Most of these people have college degrees. About half of them have, in fact, master's degrees above the college degree. This is a highly educated group. It's not the faculty. It's the people who tell the faculty what to do. And we gave every single one of these 400 subjects $10,000 to invest for real. Now, that means that I had a $4 million liability in the stock market, (laughs) which we hedged, of course. Uh, And that's what perhaps the people on the fifth floor could help us with. So we did hedge our risk. And we told our subjects, you'll have one month, and whatever gains you realize, net of fees, you get to keep. So this is real stakes for these subjects. If you play this game right, you stand to make $250, let's, let's say, at expectation. So what happened? <coughs> Here are our Harvard staff members. In the control condition, they ended up paying an average fee of $518, which is well above the minimum fee and almost near the maximum fee they could have paid. Even when we made the fees salient by giving them that one-page sheet, they still paid an average fee of $494. If our Harvard staff members had thrown darts, they would have had an allocation or an average fee of $431. So there seems to be, and I think we're studying here, some of the most sophisticated populations, realistic populations, in the investor world. I mean, this isn't the partner's... Uh, at the most elite investment banks, but these are highly educated, relatively um, sophisticated American investors, uh, we see abysmal behavior. 3% of the Harvard staff in the control treatment put all their money in the low-cost fund, and 9% of the Harvard staff in the fee saliency condition put all of their money into the low-cost fund. So that's effect one. People don't know what they're doing. Now, that's a starting point. Not knowing what you're doing means you're looking for an answer, you're looking for help. Endorsement is the second thing I want to talk about. When an employer or a government or any institution that you even slightly trust says, I have a suggestion for you in the form of a default, that is a very powerful inducement for behavior. I want to tell you about a firm uh, that we studied that gives us a hint about how powerful these endorsement effects are. What I'm going to tell you about are employees who are not affected by the default, but who have co-workers who are affected by defaults. So we'll study the employees who are not affected by defaults. These are employees who came to the firm before the default was put into place. And we're going to ask, how were they affected when defaults were introduced for other employees at the same company? So here's what we're going to do. Again, we're looking at employees who are not subject to automatic enrollment, and who are hence not subject to these defaults. We'll look at some of these employees who were hired before automatic enrollment was put in place and joined the plan before automatic enrollment was put in place. That's a control group. 13% of those employees put money into the fund that would later become the default fund. And 2% of those employees put all of their balances into the default fund. So this control group shows very little interest in what will become the default fund. Now let's look at employees who were hired before automatic enrollment was put in place, hence they're not subject to any of those defaults, but who participated, joined the plan after automatic enrollment was put in place. So they're subject to the endorsement effect, but not actually directly affected by the default. Now we see 29% of them putting some money into the default fund, and 16% of them putting all of their money into the default fund. So this is the endorsement effect. This is the power of advice affecting people who aren't even directly implicated by that that advice. Now, complexity. One of the major hurdles to enrollment in the US is the hour or two of time that makes enrollment unpleasant. You've gotta read the form, you've gotta figure out what is a mutual fund, what should my savings rate be, who do I call, how do I do this, might I get it wrong, I've I've gotta think through all the details. Complexity is a very problematic feature of all of these savings plans. Now again, economists might say, why should that matter? Why would an hour or two of your life be a barrier to to saving for retirement, which is going to basically support you for 40 years? Well, it turns out it is a barrier. What we did at at these two companies is introduce an extremely simple intervention to try to understand how important complexity is in serving as a barrier. We took the normal enrollment system and we just simplified it. We said instead of having to come in and having to read the pamphlet, make a decision, tell us what you want, we're going to mail you a little card. And the card is you know, this big and it has a box and you can check the box. And that's all you have to do to enroll in the plan. We'll take care of the rest. So you still have to engage in an active choice. You still have to check and do something. But we took a one and a half hour process and collapsed it to, I guess, 30 seconds. For the employees at Company D, when they check the box, they get a 2% contribution rate, invested 50-50 in money market and stable value, a bizarre asset allocation, but we didn't choose it. For the employees at Company E, if they check the box, they got a 3% contribution rate, 100% invested in the money market fund. So what do we find? So first, Company D. We're going to study, again, control versus treatment. For a control group, they only had a 9% enrollment rate before we introduced this quick enrollment, this simplified enrollment system. When we introduced the simplified enrollment system, the enrollment rate holding tenure fixed rose to 34%. So a rather extreme difference. For the second company, we focused on employees who were kind of recalcitrant non-enrollers. These were employees who remained unenrolled two years into their tenure. And we sent and we looked at some of those employees and asked after two years of not enrolling, how many would enroll on their own in the next four months? And the answer in the control group is 6%. What about those employees who we sent the postcard to? How many of them enrolled in the next four months? 16%. And every time we sent the postcard, another 10% of them would enroll. So we could take this population of non-enrollees and enroll about 50% of them simply by mailing them five of these postcards. Now to the fourth mechanism that's at play here, present bias preferences. And for those of you who were here yesterday, you'll find this familiar, I hope. Uh, The idea here is that when people evaluate the future, they don't just discount exponentially delta, delta squared, delta cubed. Delta's a number like 0.95. So as I exponentiate it, I downweight the future. They also have this additional downweighting factor, beta. And beta provides this additional uniform devaluation of the future. Let's think about how that beta effect can drive procrastination in enrollment in these retirement plans. So I want to think about the following example. And whether you procrastinate on um, doing your taxes or not exercising or not dieting, the same model applies. Here we're going to basically take that analysis and see how it works in the realm of saving. So suppose that you can join a savings plan. Suppose the effort involved in joining the savings plan is about 50 bucks. So that's not a dollar charge. That's actually an effort cost that I'm translating into dollars. That's your time. That's your frustration. That's your irritation in reading all the fine print. Now, you're going to get a huge benefit by joining the plan, a $20,000 tax deferral or matching money or something like that. So the benefit is enormous, $20,000 relative to the effort cost of joining. Now, every day that you delay joining the plan, it's as if the value of your pension just fell by a certain amount. Let's assume that that decline in value for each day of delayed enrollment is $10. This is illustrative. So when should you enroll in the plan? Should you enroll today? Should you enroll tomorrow? Should you enroll the next day? Let's work it out. If I enroll today, I pay 50 bucks, that's my effort cost, and I lose no additional benefits. So these will be the total costs. We're gonna kind of calculate the total psychologically discounted costs of enrolling. So enrolling today generates a net cost to me of $50. Because I pay the 50 today in effort, it counts fully, it's not discounted. What if I enroll tomorrow? Well, I pay nothing today, there's no effort involved today. I pay the 50 in effort tomorrow, and because I haven't been enrolled for a period, I lose $10 of enrollment benefits when I emerge from retirement. So here, the net cost of enrolling is one half, that's my discount factor, that's my beta, multiplying 50 and 10. So my net cost of enrolling is only 30. Better for me to enroll tomorrow than to enroll today. Now, does that logic perpetuate? No. When I think about enjoying in, in two days, I say, no, I don't want to join in two days because then this cost goes from 10 to 20. The net cost of enrolling in two days, discounted back to my present today, is 35. What about three days? Same logic. Now the cost goes up to 40. Where is cost minimized? Cost is minimized if I enroll in my savings plan Tomorrow. And you understand the problem. The logic repeats itself every day of your life. It's always better to enroll in the savings plan tomorrow. And that's why American investors and American employees take a very, very long time to enroll in their savings plans. Now let's see how these effects interact with the kinds of effects we talked about a moment ago illiteracy, endorsement, complexity. Let's look at illiteracy first. If you're highly sophisticated, if you're a partner at an investment bank, it doesn't take you a lot of time to enroll in a 401 k plan. You know exactly what a 401 k plan is. It's maybe even fun to allocate your assets. I find it vaguely thrilling. And I'm not even a partner at an investment bank. Um, so for for people who understand finance, for people who understand how these things work. Making these choices is not so costly. So what I want to do now is think about a cost being 10 and not 50 of joining the plan. What if the cost of joining the plan is only 10 for me because I understand how finance works? Because I don't have to read the form for 3 hours because it's easy. Well, now the cost the cost of joining today is 10. The cost of joining tomorrow is 10 and then I lose 10 because I delayed joining for a day. The cost of joining in two days is 15. The cost of joining in three days is 20. So as I drive down this initial cost of enrolling, it actually becomes optimal for me to join today. And if it were fun to join, of course I would join today in a second. So for people who don't find these events so costly, the procrastination dynamic never gets started. Now the same thing is true when we think about endorsement and complexity. Endorsement is another trick for helping people decide what to do. It's another way of advising people and simplifying their life, making decision-making easier, less expensive, less effortful. Likewise, when we remove complexity, we also drive down the cost of making decisions. And these kinds of interventions, as we saw a moment ago, whoops, push us, to the, push us away from procrastination. So when we make these little activities just a little less costly, we can pull people into these good behaviors, defeating the cycle of procrastination. Now, uh, let's think for a minute about public policy. I've talked about a lot of positive science. And Lionel Robbins would be happy with me, mostly, I think, because I haven't crossed the line into normative stuff yet. But I'm going to, in honor of him, signify we are about to do normative economics. It is not positive economics, and uh, we're going to get onto some thin ice right now. So, how do we think about designing optimal mechanisms, building an optimal situation, building optimal institutions in a world in which people have the kinds of preferences that I've been talking about so far? The faults are going to be sticky for three reasons. They're going to hold on to us and grip us and influence us for three reasons that we're going to put into a formal model. First, there's a cost of opting out of a default. It's a it's somehow costly or it's effortful or it's irritating to spend an hour of my life and exit the default fund. Figure out how it works, make the phone call, find the number, read the prospectus, etc. That cost is varying over time. Some days I've got a lot of free time, some days I've got no free time. When I've got a lot of free time, that's great. I'm going to do it. When I've got no free time, please don't bother me. But That rational reason for waiting to do something is offset by the other reason for waiting to do something, which is present bias. If I'm present biased, I may inefficiently delay joining the plan. And I may delay joining the plan for five years because every day of my life, I'd rather do it tomorrow. So we want to build a model that has irrational reasons for delay and rational reasons for delay. And let all of these motives play off each other in a world where heterogeneous consumers populate our economy. So here's the basic setup. And I think this kind of framework can be applied to almost any problem that you're working on. So you can always think about the world as having psychologically rich, cons- uh, I shouldn't, the word rich is a little bit uh, problematic in this lecture, uh, psychologically complex consumers, uh, complex households. I'll call them behavioral households. For this application, they have a flow cost of staying at a default that is the wrong savings rate for them. They have an effort cost of opting out of that default, the $50. That effort cost is varying over time, depending upon whether there's a free day, in which time is basically low cost, or a very busy day, in which time is high cost. And finally, they're prone to procrastinate. That's the consumer. Those are the people who live in my economy. What about my regulator? What about my government? Well, I'm going to specify a dynamically consistent social welfare function of the planner. For example, I could set the beta parameter to 1. The planner is not not a hyperbolic discounter. The planner is just a good old exponential discounter. But you can decide whatever planner you want to put into the world and probably consult um, your priest or your rabbi or your um, pastor or your um, philosopher to come up with that social welfare function. And then the planner is going to pick a set of defaults or pick a set of institutions that maximizes the social welfare function, taking into account the procrastination and imperfection of the consumers in the economy. Now, this kind of analysis picks out two answers to the question, what should our institutions look like? How should we build our society? One answer is we should have automaticity. We should automatically enroll people in these kinds of plans. And we should basically leave it up to them to opt out of the plan when they get around to it. But there's another answer. And if there are some libertarians in the room, this will give you heart. The other answer is we should compel people to make decisions for themselves. We should tell them inaction is not an option. It is incumbent upon you to make a decision, to actively choose, like the people in the 401k, who were told, you must asset allocate. We will not default your matching contributions. Now, depending upon the nature of my economy, this or the other system will be optimal. For example, in a world where everyone is identical, where we're all homogeneous, where we all want the same savings rate and the same asset allocation, what should I do? Obviously, automatic enrollment. In a world where everyone's highly heterogeneous, I want to force people to choose for themselves. Why? Because if I pick a default, people may stay at that default far too long. They may spend their whole life at that default, always planning to opt out and never getting around to it. So if Richard's optimal savings rate is 8% and I default him in at 5%, he may spend 15 years planning to make the change to 8% and never getting around to doing it. So defaults can be very dangerous in a world where people are highly heterogeneous and where they're highly prone to procrastinate. And you may want one or the other system depending upon how much people procrastinate and how heterogeneous our population of consumers is. So the key point here is sometimes the best default is no default, is a compulsory decision. When we solve these models, and I won't uh, burden you with any of the algebra, we end up with pictures like this at the end of the day. Beta, as you remember, is sometimes a measure of the propensity to procrastinate. Low beta values generate lots of procrastination. High beta values imply no procrastination. So when you are a big procrastinator, it is optimal to force people to decide for themselves, to not let them procrastinate, to give them what you all find familiar, a deadline. But when you're not a big procrastinator, then it's appropriate that we give people um, the opportunity that to accept the default. We give them a default and we do not compel them to decide for themselves. By giving them the default, we let them decide when they will opt out of it. We let them find a low cost period to exit from the default. There's another dimension that's important here. It's heterogeneity. When the population is all the same, when everyone is basically identical, defaults work relatively well. When people are highly heterogeneous, that's when we wanna force them to make decisions for themselves because we're afraid that if we simply default them somewhere, they'll stay at the wrong default for a long time, never opting out. So what are the lessons from the analysis of these kinds of normative models? Default should be set to maximize the average well-being of society, which is not the same as saying that the default should be equal to the average preference of citizens. Again, the default should not be equal to the average preference of citizens. Why? because the default has two purposes. It causes some people to opt out, and it becomes the savings plan for those who do not opt out. So you have to ask yourself always, who is going to accept the default, and who is going to opt out of it? And you, in essence, want to worry about both of those margins, recognizing that the people who ultimately accept it are the ones who will live with that default. And those who are kicked out are being motivated by the default, potentially, to make a decision for themselves. Now let me show you how these kinds of active decision environments work. We actually have a few examples of it. I've already showed you one in the asset allocation space. Here's one in the participation space. We studied a firm where employees were told, you are required to let us know what you want us to do in the 401 k plan. Passivity is not an option. You are not allowed to do nothing. You must answer the question, do you want to be in the plan or not? Just like the health plan in the US, Just like the tax form in the U.S., you must fill out the form. What do we find? Well, in blue, I'm showing you a standard enrollment system. That's in a system where it is up to you to call to enroll. So the default is non-enrollment in the blue case. And if you call, you're out of the default of non-enrollment and you're enrolled. The red case is what happened when we told employees you are obligated to decide for yourself. There is no default. You are forced in some libertarian nirvana, to make a decision on your own. Uh, With you can get advice, but you are not allowed to lean on the crutch of a pre-existing default. In that case, we got 70% enrollment rates in comparison to 40% enrollment rates when the default was non-enrollment. Now, of course, at this firm, we could have adopted an automatic enrollment system. And as you already have seen, if we had adopted automatic enrollment, we would have had an enrollment rate up here at 90%. So which system should we have? What society is appropriate? Are you a strict libertarian, in which case you want to force people to choose? Are you a gentle paternalist, in which case you may be comfortable with automatic enrollment, which will put people up here? Or don't you care, in which case the old status quo is fine? Um, I don't have the answer, but I think we are beginning to have a set of tools that enable us to. To, to at least get some leverage on these kinds of problems. Okay. Now, defaults are rapidly transforming the environment in the U.S. and in Europe, particularly in the U.K. They're being used now for all sorts of dimensions of the savings decision. People are being nudged in every imaginable way now with the use of creative defaults. It's going to be a very active area of innovation for the next 10 years. And perhaps someday we'll have individualized defaults. We'll know enough about the individual saver to pick a default for her. You know, we, know, we know where you live. We know who you're married to. We know everything about you. Uh, not everything. Most. Um, what is your name again? And as a consequence, we will pick a default worker by worker. That is a um, perhaps a disutopia to come. Now. I've told you how powerful defaults are. I've told you that I think they they derive their power from the four psychological effects that I described earlier. But what I now want to do in the next five minutes is throw cold water on alternative mechanisms. So you might think, hey, we don't need defaults. We can use standard, traditional, classical economics to solve our problems. Enough with these paternalists. Let's do it the old way. Well, paying employees to save and educating employees are remarkably ineffective tools for getting the ends that policymakers are trying to pursue. Why is that? Well, let's look at the evidence. First, in the US, we studied workers who had access to a match, workers who could take money out of the 401 plan overnight, workers who were, in essence, faced with an arbitrage opportunity. They could put money in the plan, The money would be matched by their employer and they could withdraw the money with no tax penalty within a week. That's arbitrage. That is an inexcusable temptation or or, or an opportunity that no economist could possibly turn her back on. Nevertheless, in the population of employees that we studied, half of the employees failed to take advantage of this arbitrage by simply contributing to their 401 plan. And these employees were all over age, the employee in the population that we studied because of the tax rules were all over age 59 and a half. So they were on the brink of retirement. They had every reason to be thinking about saving, but only half of them were taking full advantage of this arbitrage opportunity by simply contributing to their 401 plan up to at least the match threshold, which is low. It's about 6% in the US. So employees do not respond to arbitrage. On average, they were losing, handing back about 1.6% of their salary, the employees in this study. When you think about the unions, the strikes in Paris, the fights we'll have over inadequate pay, here was a 1.6% salary increase that could be had for a three-minute phone call, which half of the workers were turning back. Now, that's one dimension of disappointing effects coming from a traditional economic lever. Here's another traditional economic lever that I think is disappointingly ineffective. Financial education seminars and many other kinds of education and all of the work that I've been telling you about, we try to educate our subjects. We see, can we disclose fees? Can we explain the arbitrage and get you to save? In this case, can we just spend a day with you in a seminar, and explain how useful it is to save for retirement, how easy it is to do so. Perhaps you will, employee, respond by joining the plan, respond by appropriately allocating your assets. But what do we find? Of of the employees who choose to attend these seminars, the employees leave the seminar with great expectations, great intentions. Of those employees who are not on the 401 plan, 100% say they're going to join the 401k plan. Of those who are already in the 401k plan, many will increase their contribution rate, will change their fund selection, and will change their asset allocation. Or so they say, these are just verbal reports. One reason why economists perhaps are skeptical of verbal reports is because in our study, the verbal reports generate almost no follow-through. We have these employees' administrative records. We know exactly what they did. We are looking under their rug. 14% in this group actually joined the plan. 8% increased their contribution rate. 15% actually changed their fund selection. And 10% changed their asset allocation. And if anything, this is a biased group because these are the people who chose to come to the financial education seminar who we would think are motivated to do these things. In contrast, the people who did not come to the seminar... Had a seven percent joining rate, a five percent contribution. At five percent of them tended to increase their contribution rate. Ten percent of them changed their fund selection, and six percent of them changed their asset allocation. So yes, the green column, which is the follow-through for our seminar attendees, is slightly higher than the red column, which is the behavioral change rate for the non-attendees. But if you're trying to get people at risk ready for retirement, these kinds of follow-through rates are disappointingly low. Yes, we can touch some of the population, but they're already highly selected and their behavioral change is quite minimal. Now, wherever we try to study financial education, we find remarkably limited effects. We don't find disclosure to work. We don't find seminars to work. Uh, we don't find an, a national news hurricane to work. When Enron and Global Crossing and Kmart all went bankrupt in 2001, the employees at those companies lost their retirement nest eggs because so much of their wealth was tied up in, that, in those company stock. We thought that the 2001 episode would produce a wave of rebalancing out of employer stock everywhere else in America. And we looked at the data. This was a year of headlines, a year of news reports, Surely the American public would get the message that what happened at Enron could happen somewhere else and they would withdraw their money from their employer stock. The headlines often said, Enron employees lose everything in their retirement plans. Well, there was no net sales of employer stock in reaction to these news stories in the U.S. over that year. Um, We looked at new hires. They continued to invest their money in employer stock at the same rate before the Enron scandal broke. We even looked at new hires in Houston, which is where Enron is located. And we found the exact same pattern, no behavioral change. So my collaborators and I, James Choi, John Beshears, Bridget Madrian, uh, Andrew Metric are pretty skeptical about claims that education is the key. We're not saying that education doesn't work at all. After all, it is our business. And you're here tonight getting some of it. But we believe that It is not a cure-all. It is in fact a very, very weak instrument. Okay, conclusion for today and then we'll take some questions. So defaults are not neutral for four reasons. Investors are remarkably financially illiterate. Um, Well, as a typo, (laughs) financial literature. Uh, Investors display an endorsement effect. They take a hint. Um, Investors respond adversely to complexity. Uh, So the default and its simplicity is very appealing. And investors are prone to procrastinate. Employers and institutions, and of course this goes well beyond the savings realm. It could be the way hospitals are run. It could be the way society in general pushes and nudges us in so many different directions in terms of diet and exercise. Institutions will influence these outcomes in the choice of default. It really makes a night and day difference. And it makes a bigger difference than so many other things that we as as a society treat as critical, like education. Defaults are more powerful. Defaults are more influential. Defaults are cheaper and easier tools for controlling behavior. Hence, we should devote a lot more time to discussing both the positive science of defaults, just literally, how do defaults affect people, and also the normative science of defaults. What is the right default for society? Okay. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much, David. That was great. And not only because you were the first visiting lecturer here who has targeted a senior economics professor and accused (laughs) him of financial illiteracy uh, not once but several times. Uh, It's not something I've been bold enough to do. I'm not saying you're wrong. Uh, But uh, the the other thing I recall is the phrase procrastination dynamic, which I like because that since it gives a sort of active, positive sense to procrastination. Uh, I'm going to throw it open to questions, but let let me have the right of the chair to the first one because this is an area which I have uh, also done some work in in my previous job, Financial Services Authority, where we had a statutory duty to promote uh, financial education, financial literacy. And one of the most revealing studies that I came across during that time was one, in fact, not commissioned by us, but commissioned by the AA, the Automobile Association, into the buying habits of middle-aged males they specifically targeted a group of men in their 40s and 50s who were buying a car with their own money rather than a company car and they typically would research the marketplace choose three or four manufacturers and decide which and then finally make the decision that a Ford Mondeo was what they wanted they would then typically visit three dealerships and take a huge pride in bargaining for free metallic paint or a free sunroof uh, or whatever And then sit down, having done their deal, and the salesman would say, do you want the finance? And they'd say, oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) (laughs) And more than all the profit is in that uh, decision because dealers hardly make any money on the sale of a new car. And so what we wrestled with was why it was that people who were proud consumers Mm -hmm. in terms of the actual physical object they bought turned into completely irrational, uninterested consumers when it turned into the financial transaction. Does anything in your research explain why
1: those two things can coexist in the same people? It's it's funny you should raise that example because that is very close to the topic of tomorrow's lecture. (laughs) um, But I, I can anticipate right now I call that a shrouded attribute. It's very, very hard to unravel the aspects of the financing that make it profitable for Ford and unprofitable for Tom Smith. And we're very good at thinking about salient things like um, the sunroof. In fact, you know, very, right in front of you, uh, right above you. But understanding all the pieces of financing is a great challenge. And as a consequence, the people who do understand it end up buying a car below cost. And the people who don't understand it end up subsidizing them. So we have a marketplace where the smart people, sadly, are getting subsidized by the less sophisticated people. Whereas we think it should go the other way if we were living in a just world. But, quesarasara.
0: Well, we'll hear more about that tomorrow. Who would like to kick off from the floor? Uh, I shall give Richard the right of reply in a No, I'll take a question from up here. Um, On the front, front row, wait for a mic and then give your name if you could. Thanks.
2: Hi. Uh, so in Australia, uh, we are, I think, one of the very few developed countries to have a compulsory private pension scheme, uh, where uh, people have to contribute 9%. Oh, uh, well, uh, the their company has to contribute 9% towards a private superannuation fund. Uh, and so this is a kind of a step beyond the the opt-out option uh, that you discussed tonight. And
1: uh, this. So it's always, you know, you can take your own life. <laughs>
2: Yes. <laughs> so I, I suppose you didn't discuss this, and I, I imagine that's because this idea is kind of beyond the range of kind of policy options that are being debated in the US at the moment. But uh, I was interested to hear your thoughts on what the, what, what the social welfare implications might be, if you have any thoughts, on of a compulsory contribution scheme as opposed to both opt-in and opt-out or indeed, as opposed to the, uh, the the forced savings option.
1: So it's true that the kinds of models that I've been discussing can rationalize compulsory savings, as you say, beyond opt-in, opt-out, an actual unbending requirement to save. But I tend to be nervous when such policies are advocated because... If you live in a world where governments sometimes go overboard and governments have the right to impose these obligatory behaviors, uh, they may go beyond (coughs) compulsory savings and may step into realms that we would rather not see them in. So my inclination is to support such a policy but to be very, very wary about giving governments the authority to tell us what to do beyond the authority they already have by picking the default. So I think that most of what we want to achieve can be achieved through thoughtful selection of defaults, removing the need to go to the extreme policy that some countries have adopted uh, that, in essence, hold people's arms firmly behind their backs. Thanks. Yeah, another
0: one sort of... Uh, blue shirts, three rows from the back. Um, yeah, you'll d- need to scoot around. Uh, Peter Sosu. Uh, David, there's a slight paradox in your um, example in which uh, the person keeps delaying the decision to uh, uh, open a plan, which is that um, it only makes sense to delay until tomorrow if you really are going to make the decision tomorrow. If you realize that you're prone to procrastinate, then there comes a point if the probability of making the decision tomorrow is below a certain threshold, then you actually should then make the decision today. So at some point you should learn that your probability of procrastinating is quite high, and at that point, then then you may make the decision quite soon.
1: So that's a a very active area of debate and research. How sophisticated are people and how quickly do they learn? When I began writing in this literature, I generally wrote models that assumed people were sophisticated and understood exactly the dynamic procrastination uh, that is apparent in these models. But the more experience I have looking at data, estimating these models, looking at other people's work, again, empirical work. I'm convinced that in fact there is a lot of naivete out there. In other words, a lot of people who actually believe that they will do it tomorrow. And that's why you see, um, as I mentioned in the first lecture, uh, some crazy people joining a gym, paying a thousand dollars and only going six times, uh, despite spending a lifetime studying the issue. So uh, it's, it's, it's stuff like that, which is both is personal and in the data, in the records that we that are available to us that suggests that there is a great deal of over-optimism about our own future behaviors. We think we will really do the problem set Monday morning at 6 a.m. when it's due at 9. Uh, down here at the
2: front.
0: Um, there's a mic just
1: Paul Woolley. Um, David, um, how
0: do you feel that mistrust of companies and Institutions making um, the offering of the uh, and the choice of the default, uh, how far does that interact with uh, your ideas on, on defaults and how far is that mistrust well placed?
1: So I do think mistrust is a very important issue in financial markets, not for the top quarter of the population, but for really the bottom quarter in terms of education. They don't understand how the financial intermediation system works, and they are highly distrustful and prone, in many cases, to prefer the money under the mattress instead of the money in the bank. And whether it's because they're disrespected when they arrive at the bank or whether it's because they never learned finance, I don't know. So I think we do need to worry about trust, in these markets and we do need to be very careful when we free people to set these defaults given how powerful they tend to be. I think the trust issue um, will not affect the vast majority of investors but since I'm concerned about that bottom quartile of people who don't do much saving, I'm I'm particularly concerned about the trust issue because they're the ones who are going to be most prone to distrust the financial services industry. Um, Now, you may be pointing to another issue that is relevant here, which is trust in the government who may be setting these defaults. And clearly, we had to worry the more we use defaults to control behavior, the more power we're putting into the hands of our government. And those of us who are concerned about government misuse of power are going to be nervous about that process. And so there's another trust issue that I think should be on the top of our minds. Have
0: you done any work on... Whether people are more influenced by people who can be demonstrably independent. I mean, the, part of the reason I ask this is in this country we've wrestled with this problem several times. And there was some research done in the 80s and early 90s which suggested that people were uh, more influenced by people who claimed to be completely independent. And therefore, there was, an, in fact, a regulatory intervention which said that financial advisors could only be either the salesman from the prudential and only working for the prudential or they had to be completely independent in other words they couldn't have then any sort of series of uh, of privileged relationships with anybody Um, the problem was that this therefore produced you either just an army of prudential salesmen or independent financial advisors who purported to be advising on the whole market but actually couldn't conceivably really be experts on the whole market and there was a sort of excluded middle and in fact that has uh, uh, has changed but it, it, it did seem to be based on one reasonably solid piece of research was that people were more likely to be persuaded to invest if they were being persuaded by someone who wasn't perceived to be directly working for the, for, for the company with whom they were investing
1: have, have you looked at whether that effect is robust well, so in our work that hasn't Shown up. But one of the related features that has been studied by us and others is whether people understand all of the conflicts of interest and all of the contingent um, relationships. And I think a major problem in this industry is the typical investor has no clue how these people get compensated. And so one of the reasons why I you know, worry about the commission based sales forces is they have very powerful conflicts of interest that are really invisible to the vast majority of investors. And you can disclose it. So that's not what I'm talking about. It is disclosed. But as we've seen tonight and so many, so much other work supports as well, disclosure doesn't work. So um, I do think that we need to rethink the industry and understand, figure out how to generate advice that is useful and how to generate advice that can be trusted. But in doing that, I'm worried that Conflicts of interest are very hard for the public to unravel, even when they are disclosed.
0: Yeah, I mean, because that's the way the regulators have gone here, is by a very clear disclosure which has to tell you whether it's commission-based or fee-based, but I think you're right. It's not clear that it makes much difference in practice. Yeah, up there, just behind you.
2: Thank you very much. The description which you've presented over the last two nights is exceedingly interesting, but would you accept that it has more normative force for a society such as North America, which uh, might be considered to uh, retain a a more um, authentic uh, adoption of the laissez-faire idea of capitalism than societies such as Europe or Australasia, where that position has been moved away from over time to a a more, what might be a more middle of the road position, adopting some uh, um, late 19th century liberal adaptations.
1: So it's true, it does provide a way forward for the US that is not terribly controversial. Both Democrats and Republicans have embraced the recent legislative um, adoption of defaults. And in that sense, it is true to our ethos and yet practical and useful, but I kind of think it's going to be relevant everywhere else too. And there's already a lot of evidence about that. We've seen adoption of defaults now um, all over continental Europe, particularly in England. Um, And I think the reason that it's relevant is that Europe is, and this is the bad news, moving towards the laissez-faire model. Um, Now it's true they're coming from a very different starting point, but there is convergence as the U.S. becomes more willing to influence and nudge people, um, Europe has become relatively more interested in giving people choice and freedom and all of these things. And I think if Europe adopts defaults, they will stop before they go too far. Um, But if they push all the way to the point where the libertarian ethos organizes regulation and runs policy, uh, they will actually embrace an American system that I think in many ways has has done a disservice to a lot of American investors. So I think it's actually a middle ground for both the America to, con- to converge into from the direction of libertarianism and Europe to converge to from the direction of paternalism.
0: Yeah, right in the middle.
2: David, in the example where you uh, send people postcards and you made it easy for them to enroll, there were actually two things. So one thing is that you made it easy for them to enroll. The other thing is you reminded them.
0: And then maybe a third thing, you made them feel guilty if they did not actually do something about it. So. Did you try to do something to somehow disentangle these separate effects, let's say send them a postcard without actually making the process
1: of enrollment any easier or something like that? That's a great question. Um, Well, we do want to make the the whole point is to make the process of enrollment easier, but but, uh, I think what you're saying is in the control group, did they get reminders too? And um, you're right. An ideal study should have that. I don't know whether they did or did not get reminders, but a typical 401k plan is sending quarterly reminders to all employees who are not in the plan. So that would be best practice and the norm. I don't, though, know whether this company was doing that. Um, And you're right. If that's not the case, then the analysis is confounded.
0: Yeah. Uh, Sorry, you're having to do a lot of running, but you look fit enough. In the sunroof example, do you think that the... If if the person who took the financing and was therefore classified in your language as as cross-subsidizing the smart guy,
1: if that was explained, do you think it would have changed their behavior? It would would change some people's behavior, but I think not most, because that's a very hard phenomenon to understand. Um... Again, the reason I'm guessing that is because so much of the work that we've done shows that people's suboptimal market choices are very robust, very hard to change. So uh, I don't think that – and in fact, you know, in the U.S., there are now a lot of active debates about how do we disclose costs in a way that actually teaches people something as opposed to just confusing them even more deeply. And a lot of the well-intentioned academics have proposed new disclosure forms – that when actually tried out, make things worse, not better. So, um, so, yeah, some people would get the message, and most wouldn't, if it's anything like the, everything else that has been studied.
0: Something like a third of people in this country, if you give them APRs, think that a higher APR is better. <laughs> Which is uh, slightly chastening, if you've been a regulator requiring it. Um, anybody else. I think probably not. I think you've dealt with all of these investment dummies. Uh, Richard Layard <laughs> in the lead. Um, and uh, thank you very much. For an absolutely fascinating. For me, um, this has been particularly fascinating because it was something I wrestled with for some years, and now you've explained to me why I failed, um, which uh, has been somewhat reassuring. Thank you so much. Thank we you. look forward to episode three. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.